this morning as we coming through the Gospel of Matthew, have been for a long time now. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15 through 22. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus. And God, we give you praise that, that you give us so much knowledge of our Savior through your word. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning as we read, as we read your word as we meditate on it together. God, please help us. Help us to get a fresh glimpse of Christ Jesus. Lord, we want to be those that know Christ deeply. We want to be those, Lord, that worship because you're worthy of praise. Lamb of God who is slain, you're worthy of praise. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to move more and more in that direction. Lord, we want to be your worshipers. Thank you so much for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we read Matthew 21, verse 15 through 22, which is where we're at this morning, uh, I want to mention just the two major points that I believe are in this text. So these are the two major points we're going to try to work through. And the first is the glory of Jesus' speech. And so we see that in this passage, and prepare yourself to see it as we read it. The glory of Jesus' speech. So not just his person, not just his work, not just his actions, but his speech. Uh, the things that he says, what he speaks, what, the way he talks, the way he argues, his words, the, you know, the way he debates it's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing to see it. If you remember, there's a passage in John chapter 7 where the Pharisees sent some soldiers to arrest Jesus. You remember that? And they came back with their hands empty. They had, they, they had not arrested him. And, uh, and they asked him why. And this is John 7 verse 46. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? So the Jewish authorities, these, uh, these men high up in rank and power, send these soldiers and they come back empty-handed. Why didn't you arrest Jesus? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And that's it. That's all that they said. No, no one, why didn't you arrest him? Man, we went there and we heard some things that he said. And listen to me, no one ever spoke like this man. And that's the glory of Jesus' speech, of the way he talks, the things that he says. It's a glorious thing. And I want, to see it, I want us to see it in our passage this morning. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a timeless lesson that Jesus gives on God and government. And you see that in this passage too. A timeless lesson on God and government. For the last 2,000 years, Christianity has had to exist and prosper uh, within the sphere of a whole variety 
of different kinds of governments. And Jesus' simple yet profound teaching in this passage has shaped the true church for over 2,000 years. It's a profound teaching on God and government. So I want us to look at both of those things this morning. Uh, and I want us to start with, number one, the glory of Jesus' speech. Now, the way we're going to try to get here is to see the glory of Jesus' speech in this passage, you need to see it in the broader context first. So we'll talk about the broader context, and then we're going to try to sort of narrow it down and zoom in and then eventually read our passage and see it right there in verses 15 through 22. But to see it in the context first, let's remember the context. Remember that we're in the middle of Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life before he is crucified and risen from the dead. Remember, he's in Jerusalem, not just to be the propitiation for our sins. He is that. He is going to die and be the wrath bearer for our sins, okay? The wrath bearing sacrifice. But he's not just there for that. He's also there, as we've seen throughout over the last few weeks, to pronounce a judgment on Israel, even to pronounce a curse on Israel. And so this leads to some, to some intense conflict. And I want you to understand, Jesus is not just the victim here of the conflict. He is initiating this intense conflict with the Jewish leaders, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the elite, you know, the spiritual elite in Israel. He's initiating this severe and heavy conflict that we see. Remember, he rides in on a donkey, right? He rides in and, and he's not hiding anything. Right? No, no, nothing to hide anymore. He's riding in, letting everybody know that he is the Messiah. Crowds are screaming, Hosanna to the Son of David. He's making it known. And the first thing he does is go into that temple and begin to clean house. Turn over tables, drawing attention. They, they, test his, they challenge his authority based off of that. And what we just came off of is three parables. As the, as the Jewish leadership approaches him with all the crowds around in the temple, and they challenge his authority. Who gives you the authority to do these things? He hits them with three parables that are so offensive to these Jewish authorities. And we just came off of those three parables, and then we have this in verse 15. So look at it with me. Matthew 22, verse, let's just read the first verse, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Okay? So they hadn't had enough. Three parables didn't end it for them. Now they're going and plotting somewhere. How can we, let's, let's put our heads together and find out how can we entangle this man, trap this man in his words. Now, I want you to understand the structure of verses 15, look at it in your text here, all the way to verse 46. So that's not the, we're not covering that whole passage this morning, but you need to understand the structure of verse 15 all the way to verse 46. So remember, verse 15, what are they doing? They're plotting. How can we entangle this man in his words? And you should think, yeah, good luck with that. That's not going to end well. They're going to try to entangle him in his words. You, you imagine some of these, these uh, scholars thinking, okay, I'm a, I'm a scholar of logic. I know how to identify logical fallacies, an expert in debate. Jesus is the logic. And they're trying to entangle him in his words. 
He's in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the logos. He is the logic. And they're trying to entangle him in his words. The one who invented speech. They want to try to tie him up in his speech. This is not going to end well for them. This word entangle, same thing as trap. The Gospel of Luke has the same recording and it says they tried to catch him in what he said. The Gospel of Mark says they tried to trap him in his talk. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to entangle him. That's verse 15. Now, what we see in verses 16 to verse 40 are three attempts to do that. Three attempts. And you can break them up one after another. First attempt, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians come together. And that's the one we're going to look at this morning. The second one, the Sadducees come and they try to twist up a Bible verse to teach false things and trap him in his speech. And then the third one, another Pharisee comes and tests him with another question. And of course, by the end of it, they're kind of on their heels and they're putting their heads back together. Okay, what else can we say to this man? What else can we say to this man? In verse 41 through verse 45, Jesus goes on offense. And he leans in and he says, let me ask you a question now. And he begins to question them. And at the very end of that, he asks them this question. They have no answer to his question. And here's how it's going to end in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Man, see the glory of Jesus in that. How did this begin? We're going to figure out how to entangle him in his words. How did it end? Man, don't ask him nothing else. Don't ask him any more questions. No one dared ask him any more questions. It's a beautiful thing. So what we see in this larger context is the glory of Jesus, specifically the glory of Jesus in his speech. And so I want to just mention several things that we see about the glory of Jesus' speech. First, his courageous speech. His courageous speech. Think about who he's debating with. This is the intellectual and spiritual elites debating with the carpenter from Nazareth. Think about that for a minute. And it's not just one person, not just one intellectual elite, but it's a whole group of them. In fact, it's several different opposing groups that would normally hate each other gathered together, joining forces because of their hatred for this Messiah. And they're going to try to entangle him in his words. Verse 15 tells us the Pharisees. You see it there? That's one group. Verse 16 tells us the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians would have been uh, this political party uh, that, that was loyal to, to Herod and therefore to Rome. Verse 23 tells us the Sadducees. So you got the Pharisees, you got the Herodians, you got the Sadducees. If you go read the other gospel accounts, it tells us the scribes and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin is in on this. I mean, this is people that would normally not be together, join forces to try to entangle him in his words. And that alone, all by itself, would frighten most men. But then add this piece on. Think about the context. He's in the big city, right? He's in Jerusalem. And it's Passover. 
And, and he's in the temple, the most prominent place. And crowds are everywhere. We know that from verse 33, that the crowds are listening on. Crowds are everywhere around him, listening as they're attacking him with these words, trying to trip him up. Now, most men would crumble under that pressure. But Jesus is the fearless one. He's the one that has courageous speech. Know that about your Savior. Our courageous Christ speaks with boldness. So know the courage of his speech. Second, the incredible wisdom of his speech. The incredible wisdom of his speech. Now, every one of these situations, so, so they're going to entangle in his words, and we get three situations, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, more Pharisees. In all three of these situations, if you read them and you understand them, they're trying to trap him. So they ask some sort of question that they ask it, and it's like a mic drop. Like, got the question out there, drop the mic, what's he going to do now? And in every situation, Jesus catches the mic, he flexes his wisdom, and then he drops the mic. Every situation is like that. It's beautiful wisdom played together when you dig into these situations. Every situation, he avoids the trap. But in avoiding the trap, he does not evade the question. He answers the question. In other words, he doesn't avoid the trap like a modern-day uh, presidential debate, right? Where they're asking questions, and the president-elects keep giving these non-answers. They're not answering any question. They're not answering anything at all. He's not like that. He's not just evading the question. He's staying out of their traps, but he's answering the question. And not only that, but he's answering the question. And in the process, he's silencing them. He's shutting their mouth. And not only that, but in all three of these situations, and we're going to see one of them this morning, he leaves behind this timeless lesson that has affected the church for centuries in every single one of them. It's glorious wisdom of Christ. Don't miss it as we make our way through each one of these examples. Third, we see, we see in these passages speech that silences the false teachers. His speech silences the false teachers. Now, Christians are called to do this. All, every Christian in the room, you're called to have this kind of gear, right? Where you're able to silence the naysayer. Uh, Jude 3 and 4 tells us to contend earnestly for the faith. Fight earnestly for the faith. And it goes on to say, because these false teachers, these deceivers are going out. Fight for the faith. You've got to be able to silence the opposer. Now, especially pastors. Pastors are especially called to this. I want to read a verse to you. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says, He, speaking about a pastor... He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He's got to hold to the word so he can teach sound doctrine and rebuke those that contradict it. Listen, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. I'd like to teach a seminary class called Silencing the Deceivers. 
And I think a lot of pastors ought to be disqualified in our land because either they don't have the knowledge of God's word to protect the flock or they don't have that gear and that willingness to say things that need to be said to silence the false teacher. Silencing the deceiver. So Christians are called to this, especially pastors are called to this. But listen, nobody does it like Jesus. And I want you to see the glory of it here. Nobody does this like Jesus does. If you look back at Matthew 22, at the end of the first attempt to trip him up in his words, look what it says in verse, verse, verse 22. Chapter 22, verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So they got their, their jaws dropped at his response, silenced, and they, they go away like a whip pup. Then after the second one with the Sadducees, look what it says in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So what did he do to the Sadducees? They came in with their false teaching, their confusing stuff, twisting the scripture, and he silences them. And then that third situation, in the last situation, he asked a question, and nobody has an answer. And I'll read it again. And no one was able to answer him a word. They were silenced. No one dared ask him any more questions. No one's able to silence their enemies like Jesus, the glory of his speech. Now, I want us to give attention to the glory of his speech not just in this context, but more specifically in our passage this morning. So let's read Matthew 22, and let's read verse 15 through 22. This is the first attempt to entangle Jesus in his words. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. So, again, from this passage, a few things about Jesus' glorious speech. Okay? He has speech that is undergirded by omniscience. Speech that is undergirded by omniscience. Now, notice that it says the Pharisees sent, you see it in, in verse 16, he sent, they sent their disciples, right? Along with the Herodians to talk to him. So, the Pharisees sent their disciples. Now, I want you to listen when Luke gives us this account, listen to how Luke 20 verse 20 records this. Luke 20 verse 20 says, So they watched him and sent spies. The Pharisees sent their disciples. Here it says they sent spies. 
who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So think about that for a minute. Why the Pharisees send their disciples? Well, he's already been button heads with the Pharisees. Let me send some spies that won't, maybe they won't notice. Maybe Jesus won't notice who they are. Maybe he'll be more susceptible to be tripped up in his words because he didn't know these disciples, these spies. And it says they were pretending to be sincere. And we see that in what they're saying, right? They're saying something. Man, they're just, they're just pretenders. They're just pretending to be sincere. And what were they trying to accomplish? It said they wanted to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They're trying to get him say, to say something that gets him arrested and killed by the Romans. Arrested and killed by the governor. That's their aim. This is likely why they had the Herodians there with them. The Herodians would have been pro-tax. You know, they're asking a question about taxes. The Herodians would have been these pro-tax people more likely to, um, to re report him or arrest him when he says, no, you don't have to pay those taxes. So it's likely why they're there. So the spies are sent in. They're, they're being pretenders. They're trying to trip him up in his words, but you can't trick the omniscient one. Did you see what it said in verse 18? Look at it. But Jesus... Aware of their malice. He knows they're being malicious. He's aware of their malice. You can't trick the omniscient one that knows all things. He knows their heart. I love Amos 4.13. He who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what his thought is. The Lord God of hosts is his name. That's Jesus, the Lord that declares to man what his thought is. He knows what you're thinking. And he knows what these men are thinking. Jesus was aware of their malice. To interact with Jesus, your heart, anybody who has ever interacted with Jesus, their heart has been laid completely bare before him. He knows everything about what's going on on the inside. All their intentions, all their motivations. He knows their heart like no one else does. Now this has clear practical implications for us, right? When we interact with Jesus on that final day, Romans 2.16 says he will judge the secrets of men. You'll get nothing by him. Hebrews 4.13 says no creature is hidden from his sight. But all of it is naked and laid bare before the one that we must give an account to. It's a foolish thing to deceive yourself into believing that you're going to interact with him. You're going to face him on that last day. And you're going to explain to him the excuses and the reasons for your, your behavior as if he doesn't know. He sees the heart. He sees, he sees down. He knows everything about you. Every intention. Which is why your only hope on the day of judgment is Christ crucified for my sin. He knows my heart. He knows my sin. And Jesus was crucified for me. He's the only hope. So his speech is undergirded by omniscience. Also, his speech is unflattering. We see that in this passage. His speech is not flattery. It's not defiled by flattery. Now, if you've ever... Uh, flattered someone when you, when you look back and you know it was sin you shouldn't have or if you've ever been the recipient of flattery you know what's happening they're just 
You know, they're, they're um, you know, putting the cushions out there for you. You know, they're saying all the sweet stuff. They're flattering you, but you know where it's going. Don't you hate that when you see it in yourself? When you're a recipient of that sort of thing, don't you despise flattery? We don't have to worry because Jesus can say alongside Elihu, if you remember him, I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Job 32, verse 22. I do not know how to flatter. Christ can say that. I don't know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. I want you to notice Jesus' speech compared to their speech and notice that he is no flatterer. Their speech is verse 16 and 17. Glance at it again. Teacher, listen to the flattery here. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and, and you don't care about anyone's opinions for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's their speech. And, and try to hear what's there. Man, they're just... They're so respectful, right? Teacher. They address him as teacher so respectful. They're so complimentary. You, you are true, etc. So nice, so polite, so open-minded and reasonable. It says, tell, tell us what you, we just want to know what you think. So open-minded. And then look at Jesus' words and compare it in verse 18. Jesus says, aware of their malice, he says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? No flattery there whatsoever. In a culture that would rather be flattered than told the truth, we need to, we need to beware of putting too much stock in flattering words. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That's exactly what they're doing to Jesus. The man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And a culture that would rather be flattered than told the truth, we need to beware of nice speech with a soft tone that's just covering up truth. We need to beware of that. Proverbs 28 verse 23 says, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Jesus is doing the rebuking. These other men are doing the flattering. I want to read this to you from Psalm 12. And I believe that we can see in our passage this morning a fulfillment of the prayer of Psalm 12. Psalm 12, verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Man, that sounds like these guys, doesn't it? Flattering lips and a double heart. Here's the prayer. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. That's what Jesus is doing. The tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? And in our passage, Jesus says, I'm master over your flattering tongue. And he deals with it. Nobody, nobody deals in their speech with flatterers like Jesus does. It's a glorious, a beautiful thing. I'll read one more verse from Psalm 12. Verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And that's the beauty that I want you to see. The words of the Lord, man, they're pure words. His speech is pure and beautiful and glorious.
and they are unflattering. Last one here on his speech. The simple profundity of his speech. Profundity is deep insight, deep knowledge. So he, he speaks with such deep insight and deep knowledge, deep knowledge, and yet it's so simple. It's such simple words, simple things that he says, but it's like it just cuts down into everything. It's a beautiful thing when you can see it. Now I want you to think about everything that Jesus accomplished with this short little response. It's just four verses. Verse 19, 20, 20, and 21. And think about everything he accomplishes with these four verses. For the sake of clarity, let's just read it one more time. Look at it. He says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Think about everything that he accomplishes in those short little four verses. He avoids their traps, yet he doesn't evade their question. He answers it. He silences them, and he lays down a teaching that, like I said earlier, has shaped the church for 2,000, over 2,000 years. Now, I want us to dissect that. He avoids their traps. The trap was set in verse 17. The flattery came and then they said, is it lawful? Here's the trap. Is it lawful for us to pay to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this tax was something that the Jews hated. It, it's like it represented Roman rule. It, it represented the Roman dominion over the Jewish people. There were, there were, there were insurrectionists that earlier on, had actually, had actually spoken against this tax and were killed by the Romans for it. They let out a revolt over this tax. And so this is a very loaded question. Is it lawful for us? And the Jews hate this tax. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? If Jesus says no, which is what I believe they think he'll say, they hope to have him arrested and killed. It's part of why the Herodians are there. If Jesus says yes... They hope to have him discredited. Wait a minute. This is the, he's claiming to be the Messiah, the king, and he wants us to pay taxes to another king. So they either want him arrested and killed or discredited. And so this is a trap. What does he answer? How does, how does he answer this? And Jesus' answer keeps him out of both ditches. Show me a coin. Show me the coin. Okay, here's a coin. Whose image, whose likeness, whose image, whose inscription is on that coin? And, and, they, and of course, they already know, but you look at the coin and you got the, the face of Caesar there with his inscription on it. And there it is. And they say, Caesar's, it's Caesar's inscription. And he says, well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He likes it enough to put his picture on it, give it back to him. And render to God the things that are God's. Now, this is brilliant. Can, can they arrest him? No, he said, pay the tax. Did, does he get discredited? No, he exalts God above the Caesar. He does both in this answer, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, so he, he avoids the trap, but he doesn't evade the question. He answers the question. He's not a modern day presidential candidate. No, he answers it. 
He tells them, yeah, pay the tax, render to Caesar. What is Caesar? Now, if he had stopped there, traitor, how could this be the Messiah? But he adds the profound statement. Yeah, pay the tax, render to Caesar what's Caesar. And then he adds that profound addition and render to God the things that are God. What belongs to Caesar? All right, get back to him. What belongs to God? Okay, give it to him. Now we're going to come back to that. So he, he gets out of the trap, but he doesn't evade the question. And then he silences them, as we've already seen in verse 22. They walk away like a whipped pup. And then number four, he teaches a timeless lesson that has shaped the church. It's a lesson about God and government. Um, and I want us to dig into that. And just before we do that, let me just say this one more time. So we're about to dig into to the second point here, second major point, Jesus' lesson on God and government. But before we do that, I just want to pause for just a minute. And I want you to not miss considering this. Listen, no one ever spoke like this man. I want you to just feel the glory of everything that we're reading here in the way that he's talking to them. No one ever spoke like this man. Just to listen to his teaching and listen to his arguments and listen to his debates and the way he answers these men and the wisdom that's there and the beauty that's there, the integrity that's there, that by itself is reason to follow Christ and give your whole life to him. It's beautiful. No one ever spoke like this man. And if that's never hit you, I pray that you would take time to just read through the Gospels slowly and consider what did this man say? What did the God man say? And just be caught up in the glory of his speech. Now, let's go to that second point. A timeless lesson that he gives on God and government. Now, with the Pharisees' question in the background, remember... Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no, right? The timeless lesson is in verse 21. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, it's a beautiful thing to know that brothers and sisters in Christ, you can pay your taxes, not just gritting your teeth. You can pay your taxes and you can do it as an act of faith because of what Jesus said here. That's a beautiful thing, okay? Like it or not, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but there's something broader here. They're asking, should we pay taxes? Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. There's something broader that he's getting out here, not just taxes, but government and God in general. This is a lesson, understand it, that Caesar or, or government, Caesar or government, exists as a sphere Within the greater sphere of God. Government exists as a sphere within the greater sphere of God. In other words, it's not government's on one side and, and God is on the other side. And let's figure out who gets what. It's not like that. You know, what's done to government? Oh no, we had to neglect God because we had to do something to government. But if we're going to be fully in with God, we got to neglect government. It's, it's not set up that way. But rather... Government is presented here as a legitimate, God-ordained circle of authority, but it fits within the greater authority of God. So think of it like a circle with government right in the middle, ordained by God, His idea, right? 
And then outside, not beside it somewhere, but over and around that circle, a larger circle that is God. This is what he's teaching here. So think about that. I'll give you another example. The scripture does not teach that since Jesus is king, there are no other kings. It doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches that Jesus is king and he's the king of kings. In other words, kings exist with real authority, but Jesus is the authority above all kings, the king of kings. The, the circle over, above the smaller circle of kings. In the same way, government exists with a real God-ordained authority, but ultimately God governs all government. And that's what's being taught here. Now, if that seems 